can a powerhouse woman under pressure tune into her pleasure? Can you be sharp in the boardroom and soft in the bedroom? Welcome to the Leader and Lover podcast. I'm your host, Cherise Spigner. We will take a journey and explore all aspects of Black women and having it all. We'll talk about relationship, career, status, religion, spirituality, love, and sex, all the things that contribute to the total us. So please join us as we take the journey on the Leader and Lover podcast, because girl, you definitely can have it all. everyone. Welcome to the Leader and Lover podcast. I am your host, Cherie Spigner. I am so excited to have our guest this evening. You're going to be in for a treat with Dr. Tana Session. Dr. Tana Session, as I said in her intro, has written several books. Get Your Career Life in Order is one. and She has another one coming out that she'll be able to tell us how we can access that. Dr. Session, thank you so much for joining us on the Leader and Lover podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and have a conversation with you today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. So the same three questions I ask all my guests. The first one is, what does having it all mean to you? I think having it all is when you're at a space where you're comfortable in your own skin, you're comfortable with the accomplishments that you've had in your career and life thus far. Not to say you're not looking for more, but you feel like you check some boxes off in terms of things that you wanted to accomplish in your life and your legacy. I think about it sometimes when I'm going to be 52 this year and I think about my parents, neither of them lived to see 40. And so I'm way beyond that. And not that I'm going to leave this earth anytime soon, but we don't know when our days are numbered. And so sometimes I think about if I don't wake up tomorrow, do I feel like I'm in a good space? I feel like I've left a good legacy, the story behind, touch the right lives, the right people. And I do. Now, every single day I get up and I want to make sure I continue to do that. So that's another part of having it all is just to continually push yourself and work towards accomplishments and achieving things that are going to create this lifelong legacy. No, that's wonderful. It's so interesting because in addition to the legacy piece, most conversations that I've had with guests have been around just being comfortable in your skin, just kind of finding that inner peace, finding and being complete or feeling that way, at least currently. We always strive for more, but just having that space, that being centered is really, really important. Very rarely do people say the house, the cars, you know, (laughs) so that's usually the first thing. So pretty consistent. The second question is, What are some misnomers around having it all? What do you think people think having it all is, but what has your experience been? First and foremost is work-life balance. I told my clients and people I work with that that's a lie. It's not realistic because I never want to have to be one foot in and one foot out of the other. It's like when I'm working, I'm 100% in. My clients are getting the best of me. And when I'm home, my husband, my son, friends, family, they're getting the best of me because I'm 100% in there. And so I think sometimes we throw this label around about, oh, I need work-life balance. I want work-life balance. And that's having it all. But work-life balance really is a lie. If you think about the scales, right? You're in the middle. You're trying to balance these two things. It's not possible. Someone's going to suffer. And so I've had to learn that, to me, that is the misnomer around having it all. 
That is so interesting. I had not even thought about it in that way. So when you are at work, you're completely present, 100% there. At home, you're giving your your best, you're 100% there. I'd not ever thought about that in that context, but that's very interesting. It's why sometimes we have to just turn that phone off or put right. it face down, <laughs> which is difficult, right? Because a lot of women, especially you know, Black women, we're always feeling that we need to prove ourselves in the work environment. And because of that, we tend to work overtime, longer hours, being accessible all the time, being available all the time. So I love this. I need that for myself. (laughs) (laughs) I know it may be a little more difficult now, right? Because we're in these challenging times where most people are home working. I don't even call it working from home. You're home working and the job or the workplace has invaded your space, the space that used to be able to escape from them and then come home and start all over again, refresh. And now there's this shaded intersecting economy of, oh, I'm home, but I'm working, I'm working and I'm home. There's no escape for a lot of people, but I think we still have to put up those guardrails for ourselves and and give ourselves permission to say, I'm done for the day. Just like you would if you were to leave the office, drive home, stop at the grocery store, make dinner, get get the kids ready for bed, do their home. Like you still have to be able to do that for yourself. No, that's so true. That's so true. And I don't think we do a good enough job of that. So thank you for that reminder. And then what has been your journey to having it all? What's gotten you here? Share with the audience your background. Sure. So I'll start off on the professional realm. And then if time permits, I'll go through the personal piece of it. So professionally, 30 plus years of HR experience. I've been in human resources, started out as an admin assistant, and then grew up through HR to become the chief human resource officer, VP of HR for different organizations. So Out of those 30 years, I spent 10 of them as a top HR leader for different companies. And then about six and a half years ago, I decided to leave my corporate job. So I left a big corner office and expense account and credit card and all that stuff. And I felt like I hit a wall. And what I realized were there were two things that were going on. One was I really thought that that's what I wanted to do. But then I realized when I got there, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wasn't fulfilled. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And I was like, I did all this work, got all this education, climbed this corporate ladder against all odds when people were stabbing daggers in my back and I still made it. And then I got there and I was like, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Again, thinking you're trying to get it all right. On the outside looking in, it looks good. And so I remember one time sitting across from my boss and she was like, what are your career goals? And I said, my goal is to take your job. And she was like, I'm gonna help you get there. And she did. She was a mentor of mine for many years. But then I realized that what I was doing in one company, I wanted to be able to do with many companies because I'd always hit this kind of plateau where I came in with a lot of work to do, a lot of initiatives to roll out. And then I did it. And then it was like, okay, now everything's stabilized. And I'm like, damn, what's my job now? You know? <laughs> what's, next? what's next? So I said, let me just get myself in a consulting opportunities where I can decide what's next. So now I get to work with tons of different companies, including federal and state agencies and chambers of commerce and all these different companies and different industries where I get to come in, work my magic and get them stabilized. And then when things are fine and they don't need me to move, I can move on to the next. And so that's really, to me, has been my journey in terms of finding out like what's best for me, living in my own skin, being comfortable in my own skin, showing up as my true authentic self. All of those pieces of that journey helped get me here. Now, there were bumps along the way, okay? (laughs) Tell us about some of those bumps, because I think people assume that it looks good, so it's always been good. Share some of those bumps with us. Yeah, I had that same perception too. (laughs) (laughs) Then reality slaps you, right? (laughs) Exactly, slaps you hard. So 
One of the things that I could say was a repeated theme, especially as I started getting higher and higher in the ranks, was people that were clapping for me, but not happy for me. So what I realized is that everyone who's cheering you on and clapping for you when you get that promotion, when you start that new job or that new position, especially if they see you as a threat, they start to see, oh, she has a light shining on her that we didn't know was there. Now all of a sudden she's in this role. Now everyone can see this light. That became an issue for others. And most of the time, quite honestly, it was for people who did not look like me, but were the same gender. So (laughs) read between the lines. (laughs) And that was something I experienced over and over and over again to the point where, Sherry, I started thinking it was me. I thought I was a problem. And I would come home upset, crying, because you don't cry at work. When you're a boss, you come home. Crying and telling my husband, I don't understand why she doesn't like me, what's going on. We were friends before this role. And, And then what I realized and what I had to come into acceptance of was that it wasn't about me. It wasn't anything I did or could do differently. It was a you issue. So that was their issue, not my issue. And once I got okay with that, then I realized that I can't let that deter me in terms of my goals and what I was trying to accomplish in my career. And many of those people years later, because I've seen them, they're like, oh my God, we're so proud of you. You did so well. And I'm like, you didn't feel that way when I was there, but okay. It's so interesting. I've had that experience too. As I think most of our listeners, you said a couple of things. One is as you, when you showed up as your authentic self, that's when you started having the success or that's when you started flourishing. But when we show up as our authentic self, we're comfortable with ourselves, but we're intimidating to a lot of other people around us. As long as we're afraid and we're playing small and making other people comfortable, everything's okay. But when we upset the apple cart, then we have issues. And and I'm sure there's so many of us that have experienced that. So one thing I appreciated you said was you recognized it was a them problem. There was no more that you could work on for yourself. That was about them. How do you navigate that though? And still feel like you are being impactful, you're being influential, because usually when you're in a position of power and authority, you have to be impactful and influential. So how did you navigate that? How would you recommend that others who may be having some of those same experiences, how would you recommend that they navigate that? I would say you definitely need to find some allies. I was able to find some allies in those organizations. And ultimately, quite honestly, I did leave them because it got to a point where I was like, I'm putting more into this than I'm getting out of it. So it's time for me to move on. And my husband used to laugh and say, I'll give you three years. Whenever I started a new job, he's like, I'll give you three years. That's kind of like my pattern. Every three years, I was like, next. But it was also helping me progress in my career. So definitely having allies and then having a good support system so you can realize that it isn't about you because we're there trying to fight this battle by ourselves. We tend to internalize it and then we get imposter syndrome kicks in. We start having self-doubt. We may start making mistakes in in our job. And now that becomes an issue of performance. We start feeling that everyone's against us. So we become very guarded and not letting people in, even when they're trying to. And part of being in corporate is knowing how to play the politics and how to build relationship capital, how to network. And if you're not doing that because you're so worried about other people's perception, then that's going to impact your role there as well. So I had to figure all that stuff out, understand what the politics were, who were the players that I need to connect with, who's going to be my sponsor, my ally, or saying good things about me when I'm not in the room. So that way I'm not always the one defending myself because that can be exhausting. And then at the end of the day, just doing the best quality work that I could. So not getting caught up in my own head where I started making silly mistakes 
and decisions or even like double checking emails, right? Those are <laughs> everything. Everything's on a microscope. You start feeling like they're watching everything I'm doing. Um, okay. so even double checking my emails, hit 10, count 10 before I hit send. That was my whole little thing. Like, let me count to 10 before I send this email, double check it, step away, come back, make sure the tone is right, that kind of thing. And it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, that's that emotional attack we play. Yeah, we pay a high one. <laughs> we pay a high one. And the thing is, Sherry, we'll see other people who are doing it and we think, oh, well, they can do it. I can too. Or we may even admire their particular career path. Like I have plenty of people in my corporate careers that I admired their path and model some of their behaviors and realize, oh, th- that's not going to work for me. <laughs> Got to do a reset by my own way. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting. It wasn't until I started interviewing people that I really saw the differences in how we are perceived. And I say that because I'm interviewing for a job. I'm being a full PowerPoint. I've studied your market. I understand what my 60, 90 days is going to look like. I've had people, again, that don't look like me get on a call and interview with me and haven't looked me up on LinkedIn, don't really know what the role is. I've been shocked, really, to be honest with you. And so that's when you think about how the corporate structures aren't necessarily, they're not set up for us to fail, but they're just not set up for us to succeed either. It's a whole different rule. And like you said, you have to just understand the politics and navigate those accordingly. But one thing I wanted to get back to is you deciding to leave because usually we lucky to have the job, right? Usually we should be happy that we have that job. And we have a lot of fear because sometimes we're the first in our family to get to that level of success. So there's all kinds of external pressures and then probably internally kind of talking to ourselves too. What gave you the strength? And tell us about your journey in making that decision to leap and go into entrepreneurship. Sure. So luckily I would say I have a very supportive family. So my husband and my son. So as I said, I was in the top of my game in HR, making high six figures, travel internationally, spent a week, a month in Canada and went to Europe twice a year and took the whole family and all that good stuff. And I sat down with them and I told them, I'm not happy. These people are affecting me emotionally. I'm having nightmares to the point where I actually started sleepwalking, believe it or not. That's how this stress was internalizing my body. I didn't even realize it. Started grinding my teeth and the stress started to have heart palpitations to the point where I had to wear heart monitors for a week so that they could see was I having some sort of a heart irregularity beating and I'm pretty healthy. So all of these things I realized was this job's affecting me and I can't let the money deter me in terms of doing what's best for me mentally, emotionally, physically. And so my husband and son, because I was a breadwinner, I came home and talked to them about it. My son was getting ready to go to college. And my husband's in the entertainment business, so his income is ebbs and flows. And I was the one with the insurance. It was a big decision. And at the end of the day, they both said, as we were sitting around the table, they're like, we want you to be happy. Like, we see what this is doing to you. And at the end of the day, we're going to be fine. And so with that, it gave me permission, right? Because I felt like, much like you said, being the first in your family. I'm the first in my family to go to college when I think about my siblings. They haven't gone to college. I'm the first to go to college, get multiple degrees, climb this corporate ladder. I'm the one that all the little cousins look up to. Because, oh, cousin Taylor, she travels. She does this. She does that. Not knowing I'm miserable. Like you have it all, right? Looking like I have it all. And so I remember when I decided to leave, by this time, my son was actually in college. He was in California. We were living in New York. And I was coming back and forth to see him. And I said, 
I need a reset. Like, I don't want to wake up at 50 years old and hate my life. And it took some time. I had to plan and be strategic with it and also very stealth. <laughs> and once I got to a point where I was like, okay, we could, we could be good for about six months, maybe 12, if I'm doing it right. And I said, this is the day I'm pulling the bandaid off. Like I'm, I'm doing it. And my husband was in full agreement. And we were already at this time living in California. And he was like, do you? Like, I just want you to be happy. And so I haven't looked back, which has been a good thing. Awesome. That's a great story. So part of having it all is balancing that household, your husband, your son. How did you navigate that while you were working in this high demanding position? Not very well. And I thought I was. (laughs) And I remember when my son graduated high school, we went out to dinner. It was the three of us. We went out to dinner and we were talking about something. And oh, we was just kind of rehashing like his high school years. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe my baby's going to college. He's 17. He's leaving me. Uh, uh. And he's my only one. I was having a real moment. And he was talking about high school. He goes, Ma, you wasn't even home during my high school years. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yes, I was. And he goes, no, you were always working or you were traveling. And he was like, Dana was there. That's my husband. Because my husband was the one that was going on the field trips and make sure he had his homework done and dinner and snacks. He did all that for me while I got to do what I needed to do to grow up my career. And it was like a stab in the heart, but it was also a wake up call. Cause I was like, oh my God, he started kind of reminding me in my I mind what I, thought I was doing. Right. I was like, oh, wow. I, said, I did this for you. I want you to have the nice home in the suburbs, go to a good school, be able to go to a good college, be able to travel to work. And he was like, but I wanted you. Oh, wow. Slap in the face, slap in the face, went out my sales. And I was like, if I could do it all over again, I would do it so differently. And so when I think about how did I navigate it and do it well, I didn't. In some ways I say I failed. Luckily, that's not the way he sees it. But from a mom's perspective and me thinking I'm doing all the right things to make sure he has a good life. I was like, oh, so we could have stayed in Brooklyn and lived in the projects, huh? Is that what you're telling me? Not that anything's wrong with the projects. I'm funny. Me too. a lot of money. Not for the projects. We learned how to be innovative. We learned how to hustle. Smart. You can't beat them. You can't put a price on that education. And do you do you ask for formal education to that? We are unstoppable. Wow, I really could have saved a lot of money all these years, but at the end of the day, I beat myself up a little bit about it. But then I was like, thank God I had the husband that I did because that's not his son. But he's been in his life since he was seven, eight years old and all through middle school, high school. As I was growing my career, going back to school because I didn't get my undergrad until I was 38, got my MBA at 40. My husband was there to take that burden off me so I could focus on what I needed to focus on. When I graduated with my undergrad, I gave him this statue right here that you see right there. I actually came off stage and I gave it to him. And I said, I couldn't have done this without you. And we all just kind of cried, but it was true. And so that's really, for me, how I think I balanced it was because fortunate enough to have a good partner that was in it for the long haul, didn't feel minimized by the fact that I was the one making the money and take care of the family financially. That didn't bother him. And I know that could be a big thing, especially for Black men. So I recognize that. You don't take anything away from that. He was confident enough to support me so that I can achieve my goals. And then now I'm in a position where I can support him achieving his That's awesome. That was actually going to be a segue to my question about you being the breadwinner and a little bit of that role reversal. 
I only imagine it being a delicate tightrope, but just what you said, I'm sure you're married to a confident Black man. Mm -hmm. And so usually there can be either some competition or some resentment. And those are some of the things that we deal with too, as women who have climbed the executive ladder. Walk us through just how you create that foundation so that you end up having the relationship that you guys have. Oh, it took a lot of work. And, and I'll be honest with you, I had to check myself a lot of times because I did feel like, oh, I'm the one making the money, sold this. Oh, I'm the one making the money, sold that. We're going to do this. We're going to go here. We're going to do that. I'm going to pay for this. I'm going to buy that. And not really taking into account his input because I felt like you can't tell me what to do. This is my money. And then I realized we lived together before we got married. So when we got married, the game changed for both of us because I said, okay, I have to think about this differently. It's not me versus you, it's us. And this is my third marriage. So I'm not trying to do this again. So I'm like, okay, I got some inner work I need to do to get this right. And so luckily he's not shy and sharing his opinion about what he sees in me. And so we actually just did an interview with this TV show last week. And one of the things I said was he holds up a mirror to me that holds me accountable because we have this sometimes grandiose idea about who we are in this world and who we are in these relationships, even marriage. And you need someone to say, Hey, sis, now nah, you, your crown's crooked. Let me tell you what you did. How many He's like, let me talk about this. We need, and he's a talker. I'm a, I'm an Aquarius. He's a Virgo. He actually wants to talk things through. And I'm like, oh my God, can we just stop, please? He's like, no, nah, you need to hear me. You're not hearing me. And so we've had to learn how to communicate as a couple. And a lot of that was built on starting with the finances and then starting with what do we want to do with our lives? And then what kind of parents do we want to be to each other's children? He has a son. I have a son that we came into the marriage with. And now they're young adults thinking that they both grew up with both of us in their lives for a greater portion of it. And then thinking about what do we want our retirement to look like is where we are right now. We had to go through these growth phases and we're still growing together. Yeah, we're still growing together, but we had to have those real adult conversations and moments when it wasn't heated, when we could speak in love, when we could hear each other. And usually he did a better job at it than I did. I'll be honest again. (laughs) (laughs) Now, because I'm an Aquarius. Okay. is a Virgo. So you had to hold up the Aquarius. <laughs> is that? <laughs> I always thought I was right, though. I always thought I was right. So it was hard for me to say, I'm sorry, you're right. I see it from your point of view. But I've gotten there. And I'm still I'm still a work in progress. I tell them, I'm a work in progress. It's been 18 years. <laughs> At some point, you got to say, I'm in the ninth inning. So actually, you just got to take me as I am. And no, it's all with good intentions, right? That's right. Know my heart. Know my heart. <laughs> Oh, wow. But that's amazing. We don't hear enough of those conversations. I think as people of color, we never talk about money. In relationships, we never talk externally about relationships and how we get to the place where we get to. So I'm sure that encourages a lot of people out in the audience to are maybe having some of those challenges because we are more educated now. If you look at the stats and we are climbing the corporate ladder. And even though we're threatening, we're probably less threatening than, than our Black men in some ways. So we'll get maybe an opportunity that they won't get. So how does the paradigm shift slightly when we are making more money? I know in my relationship, my fiance is an entrepreneur. So some months he can yep. make three times my salary. And then it could be a period where not. We have to navigate those waters. And I love when you said we communicate in love because 
That's what I've learned over. I've been married once before, but I've had a series of unsuccessful relationships. And a lot of that comes from how I'm communicating. A lot of it comes from what you were talking about, just having this, well, hold on, you're not telling me nothing because I have this, that, or the other, just not being compassionate and empathetic and kind of somewhat emasculating them. I grew up in a single parent family, even though my father was there, but I still did. I raised my children as a single mother. We have to learn how to be kinder, gentler, softer individuals. And we have to know that if we have a good man, we're in this together. We're a team. And if I win, you win and vice versa. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Your personal journey is just so inspiring to me. I was sharing with you that my fiance, he has from felon to phenomenal. And so you have a very similar I'm saying about yourself. I'd love to share your story there, please. Yeah, I've been branded the queen of From Foster Care to Fabulous. The first almost four years of my life, my mom was a young teenage mother. And from the time I was born, I was placed with a foster family and stayed with them until I was about three and a half years old until I was reunited with my maternal grandfather. At the time, he remarried, had some younger children, was moving from New York to South Carolina and didn't want to leave me in a foster care system. He was able to get guardianship through my mother. And they took me and moved me down to South Carolina and raised me until I was uh, about 11 years old. And then she came back in my life and she raised me until I was 15. That's the start of my personal journey. While there, I tell people I have fond memories of my foster mother. As a matter of fact, I'm on the search to try and find her or some family member that knows her because I do feel that when I think about, and honestly didn't take, think about this, Sherry, until, until I had my son. Because I didn't realize, A, that my birth certificate looked so different than everyone else's. I thought everyone's looked like mine until I got my son. I was like, wait, there's a whole bunch of information on here. Mine only has my name and date of birth. <laughs> it's like no parents' names, no hospital name, nothing. And I even reordered it years later and it came back digitized, but it was the same thing. And the thought was back then is that if you went into foster care from birth, that you were going to be adopted. So they didn't want you to have that information. But I didn't find out until years later. But then when I had my son, I realized from the time he was born until he was four years old, how much work I put into him and those formative years and him developing a personality and all the changes that children go through during those first four years. And I was like, this woman was very special to take in a child that she knew she couldn't adopt because my mother didn't give me up for adoption. And oh, by the way, the family's white, I'm black. And oh, by the way, this is the late sixties, early seventies. So in New York, so kind of a little race stuff going on too. So who are these people? And so I haven't been able to find them, but I am on a hunt still because I do want to know more about them and learn more about those four years of my life because they're missing. I don't know anything about those times. My family doesn't either. I only have one baby picture from the hospital and that's it. No pictures again until I'm four. So again, just this big gap, right? So that's part of my personal journey. But as a result of that in my experience, what I did was I started a foundation last year and it's called From Foster Care to Fabulous Foundation. I love that. Thank you. And so what I did is I kind of took my branded little theme of what people started calling me. And I said, let me turn this into a foundation so I can provide financial support to foster families that are taking in newborns to four-year-olds. So that's something now that we, my husband is on the board as well as my son. And we launched it in December, 2020. And we are partnered with different agencies, one in New York, Atlanta, and here in LA where I live. And the goal is to have them refer parents to us, or foster single parents, families, whatever, that are taking in newborns to four-year-olds. And we're going to give them some grants so that they can help kind of set them up. That is awesome. You see how you turned your 
what could have been a tragedy because some people feel that they're missing, they're looking for something, they're empty, they can't get their footing. And you've just changed that into something that's beneficial and something that you're really giving back to the community in a way. So with that being said, you talked about just your own inner work. And I know that's so important. And it's something that we don't always value. We don't always value investing in ourselves. We don't always value the benefit of just being self-reflective and doing that inner work. What got you to that? Because that for me was transformative. When I finally started taking stock in myself, And just recognizing maybe that I wasn't seeing myself the same way that others were seeing me and I needed to make some modifications, really helping me come to peace with and come to terms with maybe some ways that my father and my relationship was showing up in relationships. Our relationship was good, but he was a womanizer. And because of that, I was always with men that were also womanizers. (laughs) And I guess maybe there was some familiarity there and I didn't judge it. And so it felt comfortable. But even with my mother, just that whole emasculation of people and help me understand what got you to, and me just wanting to do better and be better, but help me understand what got you to doing that inner work yourself and just kind of where are you at in that journey? Because it seems like it's been really something that's been empowering for you. Yeah, it definitely has. I could say I was a bit arrogant in the beginning because I thought, oh, I have the degrees and now I have the degrees. I don't need to go back to school. I don't need to do anything else. I got it all. Da, 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 da. But what I realized is, in particular, when I want to go into the entrepreneurial journey, that there was some work that I needed to do within myself if I was going to be a truly successful entrepreneur. And I actually got introduced to coaching through an aunt of mine who had this program. She's based in Charlotte, North Carolina. So shout out to Christina Lee. And <laughs> she had this program and I had some family member tell me about it. And I was like, eh, I don't need that. I got my degrees. I'm over here making this money. I'm good. And then I said, OK, let me find out a little bit more. Because I knew in corporate, we had hired coaches for executives or managers that were on the bridge to become executives to help kind of fill those gaps for them. So I knew about executive coaching from that perspective, but I didn't think about it for myself. But then I got to a point in my career where I realized that I was very good transactionally, but not strategically. And my boss realized it too. And they said, look, we're going to pay for you to get an executive coach. And we are investing in you because we believe in you. So it wasn't a punishment or anything like that. And I walked into that process, not really knowing what to expect. But at the end of the day, although he gave me some tools, I felt like there was still some stuff missing. I was like, okay, I'm glad I didn't pay for this because I don't feel any different. But going through her program, oh, that was where the work was done. Like she took me way, way back. And I realized I had some childhood trauma I needed to deal with. So when I was with my foster family, I was molested, quite honestly, by my foster brother that was older than me. So that was something I had to deal with. I had to deal with the fact that I had abandonment issues because out of my siblings, so I have two brothers, one older, one younger, and myself, I'm in the middle. I'm the only one that went into foster care. The two of them, they ended up with family. So I'm like, okay, why me? Why didn't she want me? And then I had to deal with rejection. So my father remarrying and giving my stepsister his last name and not me his name. And I'm not not even on my birth certificate, those types of things. So all of these things I had to deal with and it was showing up and showing out in different ways and personal relationships and corporate America. If I felt rejection, if someone told me no, I'm like, well, I'll show you. I'm going at it with the wrong energy. I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. And so I had to do that work to find out really who is Tana and her core essence. What's her value system? What's important to her? What's her moral compass? What does she want to look like 10, 20, 30 years down the road? Who is she? And so I had to do that work 
to find out who I was. And it was such a light bulb, transformational, revolutionary moment, reformative even, that I felt like these layers were peeled off of me and a light just was shining from inside. And even others that were knowing me through this process, including my husband, were like, I see something magical happen here with you. And you should keep going. Oh, by the way, you should try and do this for other people. If you had this much of a experience, you can speak to it from personal experience and be able to give that same gift to someone else. And so that's what I ultimately started doing. So that's how I entered my entrepreneurial career was to start coaching people. And that was a big piece of the work that I did for about two years. Wow. So it's so interesting. You talk about the value system. I did a master's in leadership and organizational development. And the, one of the first semesters, they said, you can't be a good leader if you don't know who you are. So we had to do all kinds of value assessments. And it really helped me understand, wow, that's why I stay in relationships a long time, because comfort and security and familiarity are really, really important to me. That's why I won't take that risk and analyzing how many opportunities I may have lost because of that. So it's what kind of inspired me when my job asked me to move from California because we flip-flopped from California to Philadelphia. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to go and do that. And when I tell you my career has exponentially soared and I found my fiance has found me like, So when we release ourselves from some of the things that are shackling us, or at least have some understanding, again, who we really are, then the world just opens up to you. Like you said, that bright light that just really opens up. So I'm glad you shared that because so many of us need that work. Yeah. And we're either apprehensive about it or we don't think it's beneficial. I was having a conversation with someone talking about when we make that investment, if it's not tangible, so if it's not shoes or... You know, clothes or or something tangible. We have a hard time parting Mm -hmm. with our money. (laughs) But what we don't recognize is once we get to know ourselves and get to that place, everything comes exponentially. The other piece I realized about that in terms of like investing in yourself is that I can't expect someone to invest in me if I'm not willing to invest in myself. And I can't expect them to want to pay to work with me if I'm not willing to pay to work with someone else. So I remember when I first started, like I would spend oh, $100 for this program or maybe 250 for this one. And the first time I paid five figures for a program, when I tell you it changed the game for my business and that money was made back tenfold probably, but it was fear. And I was just like, oh, I could just do it with this. or I could just learn this little piece here and then put these little pieces together and figure it out. But I, I couldn't and I was blocked. And I realized that, and that was something that a coach said to me. They were like, if you're not willing to invest in you, why would I? And I was like, ooh, that hurt. (laughs) And I know that I used to try to get people's freebies. Oh, I'll do their entry level. They're 99. (laughs) Um, Figure that one out. (laughs) You got to spend some real money. You see some real change. Yes, exactly. And, And maybe part of that is just, whatever the release needs to be to even spend the money. That's probably yeah. part of the healing process. I think you so. know, just mm-hmm. to value yourself enough to make that investment and to get over that scarcity mindset, that fear mindset, and always trying to negotiate, navigate. <laughs> yeah. And I think about how much money I gave universities for a degree. And I'm like, wait a minute. 
<laughs> yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I have your book, Get Your Career Life in Order. What brought you to, and everyone who's young and trying to get a job needs this, if you're seasoned and mature in your career, it just gives you a lot of pointers. One thing we were talking about offline was your piece around resume porn is for professionals of color. So obviously yeah. you felt the need to have to call us out. Help me understand and what your thought process was behind the book and then that piece specifically. Yeah. So that book came about because of my experience in human resources, again, because I've been leading HR for different organizations. As I started consulting and doing speaking engagements, people would come up to me and say, I applied for this job and I never heard back from How many times should I follow up? And different questions were coming up. And I started keeping a log of the questions that would come up at the different events where I spoke or was on a panel. And I said, I think there's a book here. <laughs> and I was like, I should just put it in a book so that way they have it all in one place, a good little toolkit. <laughs> and they guide. Exactly. And so I told her when I said, I poured everything that was in my head through my experience in HR. I mean, I've been in every role in HR, including recruiting and hiring, et cetera. I put all of that in there. And I said, this is what I think everyone can use in terms of from the time you wake up one morning and your feet hit the floor and you say, I want a new job, or I want a promotion. This book's going to guide you through either path to get you there. Mm-hmm. Very good. And oh, I'm sorry. The other part of your question was about the resumes for people of color, right? Resumes. Yeah. So that came about because, again, specifically, I would have black and brown people, in particular black people, that would come and ask me specific questions about, should I put my full name on my resume? Should I change my hair when I go in for the interview? And things like that. And what are some of the things I need to be cautious of when I'm presenting myself? So I figured that was something that was unique. Yes, it's something that everyone can probably benefit from that section of the book. But that was specifically for the professionals of color to really think about how they're presenting themselves. Because yes, it's 2020. I wrote the book in 2018, I think it was. But these things still apply. We've gone far, but we still have a long way to go. Yeah, no, I I have a girlfriend who works in diversity and inclusion, a large biopharma company, and they are actually not putting college where you went to school at and names. So they're extracting that and they're redacting that information. So those inherent and unconscious biases won't be influencing hiring decisions. So slowly but surely this year, this 2020 has been the year of change. And yeah. to the extent that we can benefit from that, absolutely. But you're right. I used to be the one that's, let me straighten my hair because I underneath this, I have an afro. <laughs> let me straighten my hair. But you know what? Back to your coming around authenticity. When my last job, I went in with my bro and I was my pure authentic self and they hired me. They love me. And it's so interesting because there were so many accounts and teams and surgeons that they were like, oh, this person is difficult. You, We haven't been able to push the needle. We haven't been able to move the needle. And me just being comfortable and confident in myself. Oh, he loves me. <laughs> oh, yeah. you want that business? And it is because I think, A, when we are the only, usually people aren't used to dealing with us. So they're a little off guard. By nature, we're nurturers. Mm-hmm. And by nature, when we are complete and whole within ourselves, we're magic. So yeah. <laughs> it's we are a lot of people's secret weapons and they don't even know it. So they don't even know it. Hidden in plain sight. Yep. Yes. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Please, please let the audience know again about your upcoming book and where we can find you. And if you have anything else going on that we can follow you on. Absolutely. So the new book is entitled Working While Black, A Woman's Guide to Stop Being the Best Kept Secret. 
And it's based off of my journey in corporate America, as well as the journeys of some other women in different industries that have shared their experiences as well. I and mean, we also give strategies for here's some of the hurdles that we encountered. Looking back, here's what we would have done differently, or here's what we feel we did well. And we divided it by looking at what does it take to own your power, your truth, your healing, your worth, and your destiny. Ooh, and each, wow. of those, each of those components, including the name, Stop Being the Best Kept Secret, that's the name of my trademark coaching program. And within that program, I look at those different components in people's lives. So I applied it to the book in the same concept. And one of the women I was able to get, which I'm really proud of, is Nelson Mandela's granddaughter. So yeah, so she's in the book and she shares her story for the first time ever. And is very open and candid in terms of what the experience is like for international women of color, Black women that grew up in Africa, but was educated in Europe. And what was those experiences like? You'll be surprised how many things are still very similar. So that was really exciting. That book's available for pre-order on my website at TainaMSession.com, which is people can find out much more about me, my coaching programs, my HR and diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting that I do. And then they can follow me anywhere on all social medias at Dr. Tana M. Session. Awesome. All this information will be in our show notes. So we'll have links to Dr. Session's book to pre-order that and then all of her social media handles. So thank you so much. There was just so many good points. I'm like looking at all my notes. I love how can you expect someone to invest in you if you're not investing yourself? Because I'm such a big advocate for that inner work and self-improvement. I also appreciate you sharing your conversations with your husband around how we need to communicate with our men with love. If we're in these powerful positions, we need to make sure that we just support our men and our clients and communicate with them in love because they need us as much as we need them. Yeah, because if they're supporting us at home while we're out fighting the day-to-day issues that we do come across in the workplace, then it's invaluable. And we can't put a dollar value on that. And then in the beginning, just your conversation around just being complete and just being complete with yourself. So those are points that just keep resonating with these women that are successful. So for all of our listeners out there, if you're trying to figure out how to have it all, Dr. Session had some amazing points. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. I know the things that you've said will really resonate with our audience and we just appreciate you being here. Thank you so much, Sherry. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Thank you.